may be seated. Please grab a Bible and open up to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you do not have a Bible, no worries. We will let you have one. You can just raise your hand and Usher will let you borrow one of ours. If you don't own one, you can keep the one they're giving you. We would love for you to have that as a gift. Read it. Apply it to your life. We believe this to be the word of God, so please do that. Today we're in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27, we'll go all the way to verse 38. Scripture says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God. If this is your first time here, you came on a great Sunday because we're starting a new series today. We've been working through Mark since way back in Easter. Some of you are like, Easter is like six years ago. Some of you are like, it feels like it was yesterday. Wherever you are on that, you're here for a good day because we have a new series within the book of Mark. And it may be a title of a series that may make some of you uncomfortable because the title of the series is Jesus More Than a Savior. Some of you are like, but Jesus is a Savior. Absolutely he is. Yes and amen, Jesus is a Savior. But something that we see Mark kind of bringing out in some of these verses about following Jesus, something we notice in our culture today is that a lot of people in churches, some of you are like, I'm not really a church person, I'm just here today. I'll get to you in a second. Hang on. Talking to, those, talking to you church folks. A lot of us in churches, we like Jesus as our Savior, right? When I talk to people, the way that goes is I'll ask them, who is Jesus to you? They'll be like, oh, he's my Lord and Savior. They'll be like, what did he do? Like, oh, he died on the cross for me. Okay, why aren't you involved in a church? Why aren't you living in holiness? Right? Now, now you're like, don't start getting Pacific on those because we're early in the sermon. You haven't even gotten back to the text yet. But that's what we do, right? We're like, yeah, Jesus died for people. It's so loving. We love his love. We love his compassion. But when he says, drop everything and follow me, maybe we can just park there. Maybe we just read it once. We're just going to go right there because y'all feel like you're already tracking with why this is weighty for us, right? Because it's one thing to say, Jesus, I want you to save me. It's an entirely different thing to say, Jesus, you are truly my Lord, my boss, my king. And I will follow you wherever you go. This passage breaks up very easily. We're going to look at verses 27 through 30. And we're going to find first a confession. A confession in verses 27 through 30. 
It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, understand Jesus is not vain in the sense that he's worried about that. He wants to hear what the disciples think and what they're hearing. Who do people say that I am? To this point, Mark's been showing us Jesus going around and healing people, both Jew and Gentile. He's had confrontations with the Pharisees and the scribes. And suddenly, he looks at his disciples, the people who are closest to him and following him, and asks the question, who do people say that I am? Verse 28 says, they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. They start giving him all the right religious answers. All right, all the Jews are looking for you to be a prophet. You're doing all these signs. They know you must be from God. No one's saying what they're actually thinking, though. Jesus surely has to be more than Elijah because he was back in the Old Testament. And while he was taken up from us, and we don't really know what that means, and he was predicted to come again, John the Baptist fulfilled that because he came and fit the description of Elijah and was baptizing people. So that's already been taken care of. John the Baptist has since been beheaded, so he can't be him. He can't be one of the other prophets because that was at least 400 years before Jesus. Anybody 400 years old in here? Nope. Okay, there you go. That's my point. He can't be one of the prophets. So who is this guy who's going around and he's healing the sick? He's, he's interacting with Gentiles. and Who is this man? Jesus, though, really wants to hear what the disciples think. And he says that in verse 29. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter, if you don't know, is the one who often speaks up in all four of the Gospels. Um, as a younger man, some of you are like, you're still young, true, but I've been a Christian for a long time. So as a younger man, I related a lot to Peter. You know why? Because Peter puts his foot in his mouth a lot. He just says things and thinks he's doing well, and then it ends up he's nigh. Here, he actually gives an excellent answer. Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Your translation may say Christ. That's because Christ and Messiah, same word, pointing to this anointed one, the anticipated one of the Old Testament, the one who all the Jews were looking for to come and rescue Israel. You see, at this point, you say, why are they rescuing Israel? Israel is under Roman occupation, all right? This may confuse you. You're like, how how was it that they were Hebrew and you're in Israel, and, and then Jesus gets killed on a cross eventually, and that's a Roman form? That's what's going on. Rome had taken over most of the known world including Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Galilee where Jesus is most of his life. And all of these people are saying, we are looking for our Messiah, for our Savior, to come and rescue us from this tyranny. So Peter answers him, you are the Messiah. And it says, verse 30, and he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. This is an affirmative from Jesus. And you say, it doesn't say that. Remember Mark's writing style, if you've been with us. Everything's just matter of fact. This is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. If Jesus had wanted to contradict him, it would say that very clearly. The fact that he says, okay, don't tell anybody, says, okay, Peter, you're right, but don't tell anybody. Now, often in Mark, we see Jesus warning people, don't go and tell yet. And often it's because of what we find right here. Peter makes this great confession. He says, you are the Messiah, but he doesn't really get what that means. It's like here today, you may be someone who says, Jesus is my Savior, But you may not really get what it means that if Jesus is your Savior, he must also be your Lord. Peter understood perhaps that he wanted a king, but he didn't understand the way Jesus was going to go about it. So when Jesus starts talking about that, it seems like he finds a contradiction, which is what we find next 
in verses 31 through 33. First we found a confession, now we find a contradiction. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, how he refers to himself, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. Pause. You're Jewish. You think your Messiah that's been prophesied about for a thousand years is finally here. You're expecting him to kind of be on the side of those religious people. Be like, all right, the Pharisees and scribes are going to like come under you, and it's going to be this great overthrow of Rome, right? Jesus immediately starts after he says you're the Messiah and says, it's necessary for me to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. Scripture says he spoke openly about this. Yours may say plainly, boldly. He's speaking very matter-of-factly. Jesus is not guessing. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's saying this is what's going to happen. They're going to rise up against me. They're going to kill me. Not I just have to die. Not just the Romans are going to kill me and the Pharisees are going to take over. He says he must suffer and die. Not only that, but he predicts his resurrection. Any of y'all ever watch like magicians on TV or on YouTube videos? They find people in the street and they do all these little things with cards. And I'm like, man, that's so cool. I wish I could learn that. Y'all know what the best trick ever would be? If you could say, I'm going to be killed, and three days after that, I'm going to come back to life. And then you did it. This just trumps everything. Because they're expecting, okay, Jesus, you're here. We're seeing you with all this power. Now it's time to overthrow Rome, right? We get that you're the Messiah. It's time for you to do this. And he takes it a totally different way. Now, this is a big turning point in the whole book of Mark. Because at the very beginning of Mark, Mark 1, 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That Christ, again, Messiah. And this is the first time we have someone human recognize that Jesus is that Messiah. And then Jesus starts talking about his death and resurrection, which he's going to do at least two more times in Mark before this actually does happen. So Peter, of course, doesn't like this. Peter, with all this confidence, because he just made this great confession, is like, that's not what the Messiah does. Let me, let me set you straight, Jesus. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I told y'all, Peter's that guy, right? If you haven't been that person in your life, you probably will be at some point, or you probably were at some point, and you just didn't know it. You might be that person now, and you don't know it. Peter, with all this crazy boldness, misplaces it may be, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Notice verse 33, but turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Jesus, so Peter come, brings him to the side and is like, listen, Jesus, isn't it? Jesus brings him back to everybody and is like, hang on, y'all, Peter's wrong? And not only that, he says, get behind me, Satan. Whew. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. That's pretty strong language. Some of you right now, if I called you Satan, you'd start throwing stuff at me. It'd be down right here, right? Gloves off. Get behind me, Satan. Now, was he saying that Peter is actually Satan? No. But he is pointing to the fact that it's satanic to tell Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, that he should not follow his Father's will to suffer and die. It's satanic to go against that plan. It's satanic to remove Jesus' death and resurrection 
from who he is and what he's come to do. Because that's an essential part of his work. So we have this apparent contradiction. It's not really a contradiction, but to Peter it is. And what this ends up being is a scolding of Peter and then Jesus turning to everyone and issuing a call in light of this. Verses 34 through 38, he issues a call. Notice it says right there, calling the crowd along with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You want to find a verse in the Bible that contradicts today's culture? Highlight that one. Highlight that one right there. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Our world says indulge yourself. Live your truth. Follow your heart. Jesus says no. Deny yourself. Yes, you may desire this in your life, but that's because your flesh is sinful. That's because the world is sinful. That's because Satan is tempting you. It's not because it's what's good for you. He says, take up your cross. I just want to make sure we all get what that means. Take up your cross. He's not telling them to wear cross necklaces or put on cross pendants, okay? In that day and time when someone was told to take up your cross, you know what you're telling them to do? Go die. It would be like today, some people don't like this uh, metaphor here, but it would be like if I said, take up your electric chair. Take up your lethal injection. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Not follow your heart. Not follow your friend's advice. Follow Jesus. And where is he saying to follow him? Think about that in context here, y'all. He was just telling them, I'm going to suffer and die. So when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, he's saying, do what I'm doing. He's saying, do what I'm doing. These last few verses, I just want to read straight through one more time because this should wreck us. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of, this, of his Father with the holy angels. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or if you do know Jesus, and you think that this is something you can do on your own, in your own power, you are lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Here's why. We said earlier the world's already against us. Indulge yourself, live your truth, follow your heart. You can do all those things if you really want to. If that's just something, if you've got a tattoo that does that, I'm real sorry. I hear there are some people who can do some work to help you correct that later, if that's what you want to do. The truth is, if you indulge yourself, you live your truth, follow your heart, you're only going to find fleeting happiness. It'll leave you ultimately empty. Some of you know this, even better than me, probably. We've gone, we've experienced the things of the world, and we've found ourselves lonely. We've found ourselves at the bottom. And just doing what everyone said to do didn't make it better. But the problem isn't just out there. It's in our own hearts as well. You see, in verse 33, Jesus draws out something really important there. He says, 
Peter's thinking about human concerns rather than God's concerns. Y'all, this was a hard passage to package for a sermon because we could just talk about that for at least an hour, couldn't we? Being more concerned about our concerns than God's concerns? How many hours do we spend binge-watching Netflix? How many hours do we waste? And then we act like we really care about what's in the day's headlines because we saw it on social media, so we're going to be mad for a second, but then we're going to go right back to our show. It's not going to stop us. We're going to go right back to sleep. Verses 35 through 37, he draws out some real things as well. Some things inside of us, because maybe we're afraid of losing the lives we have. Maybe we're afraid of losing our careers or our friends. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, oh, this is one of these people who's saying that the church is just persecuted. No, I'm telling you that if you follow after the Jesus of the Bible, some relationships will be harder for you. Some careers will be different. In this church, some of you know that and live that out even better than I do. I know you're the outcast of this job, and you're standing in there. Hold strong. The Spirit empowers you to do that. Some of you encourage me in the way that you do that. Y'all, for some people, even in this church, following Jesus complicates your family life. Further complicates family life. Makes it hard with your spouse, or your siblings, or your kids. judged by the silence in the room that that hits home for a lot of us you know that it creates tension when you say i'm gonna follow after jesus and you're rejected for it these are legitimate things everyone but if we look at verses 35 to 37 what does it say whoever wants to save his life will lose it whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it Church, it's one thing to say, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. Do we believe this? Verse 38, we find something else about our own hearts. It says, maybe, maybe we are ashamed of Jesus and his works. Maybe in a culture that is increasingly secular, specifically in Charleston, maybe... It's not so cool to be a Christian anymore. And we are embarrassed or ashamed by Jesus and his words. Maybe we don't really believe that his commands are for our good. You ever thought about that? You say, I see that it says this plainly in the Bible, but that, that doesn't fit my life. You know, I've heard people say before, if Jesus were alive today, he would understand that, that couples live together before they get married. You understand the base problem with that assumption, right? Jesus is alive today. His word is alive today and speaks to today. And in all of our sin, we're confronted by his words. I'm confronted by his words when I come to scripture. The more I study scripture, the longer I follow after Jesus, the more his light shines into dark corners in my life and reveals sin in places where I need to repent, where I need to Deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Now, here's the good news, folks. 
Because if we just say, man, we can't do this, and we send everybody home, then this has been a pretty depressing day, right? But there is good news. Because understand, first of all, that Jesus did this. Notice he says, follow me. He's leading the way. He did this primarily at the cross. And the cross, by the way, wasn't plan B. Don't be fooled by that narrative. Okay, everything got so bad, God had to do something different. No, 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 no. This was his plan from before the foundation of the earth. It was predicted literally hundreds of years before Jesus was ever even born. We have it in Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 3 through 6. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus that he was going to be a suffering servant. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. And we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. But the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The reason Jesus rebukes Peter is because he says what? This is necessary. Notice that back in verse 31. It was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. It wasn't optional. This was the only way. Now, Peter had built in his mind there was this other way. There was this way the Messiah was going to save them. Maybe we do that now. Maybe we've been told another way. Maybe you say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was four, and though my life is completely living by my own desires and doing what I want to do, I said that prayer, and they said I'm good, and once saved, always saved, right? You know what the problem with the once saved, always saved is? You've got to be once saved. <laughs> got to be once saved. And you can be once saved. Because it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross, and he did. It was necessary for him to take on our sin and pay the price that we owe to God. Understand, he is holy, completely without sin, perfect and good in all of his ways. He is loving and gracious, and we, his creation, actively rebel against him every day. Someone had to pay for that sin for him to remain a just God. And Jesus willingly laid down his life to pay that price. And as he predicted, he didn't stay dead. He came back to life three days later, showing that his payment paid in full. Okay? There's not a balance left. Jesus didn't do his part for you to say, okay, now come follow, and that'll be your part. No, no, no. When you trust in Jesus and follow him, you are credited his righteousness you are completely clean. You are completely made pure. You are without sin before God. Think about that if you haven't thought about that in a while. If you beat yourself up and you know your sin, when I read this is about our sin, we say, yes, that's me. I'm such a lowly sinner. Yes, we are, but in Christ, God sees us as righteous. He calls us his children. He loves us. He welcomes us in. He runs to meet us. Isn't that good news? Jesus did what we could not in our place so that we could live as we should now and forever. Because you see, now in Christ, we can do this. 
we can deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. How do we do that? I'll tell you, if it starts with, I am going to do this, we're already wrong. Because the whole I am or what we must do, we completely do in response to who he is and what he's done. We receive grace, okay? God acts first. He has acted first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So now we receive grace, and by grace through faith, we can live in this way. By grace through faith, we can sing, I will build my life upon your love. By grace through faith, we can do what we're told Jesus did in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Notice it first gives us a command, but it gives us what he did. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Just notice it said, said there at the beginning, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. When it talks about him emptying himself, it doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It means that he willingly humbled himself. Do we get that? He chose for the glory of God and for our sakes to leave the throne, to come after us. He entered into our suffering. He entered into our heartache. He entered into our pain and our sin and this mess of a world to glorify the Father. And to save a people for himself. When we receive Jesus by grace through faith. Now we can think about God's concerns rather than human's concerns. Because we know he's handled our greatest problem. We don't have as many concerns when we know that Jesus has dealt with our sin. We know that we can bring our cares to him and cast them on him. We know that we can bring all of our anxiety to him in prayer. We know that he cares for us. He's not distant. Maybe if we said we're afraid of losing the lives we have, losing our careers, losing our friends. Oh, and Jesus, he becomes our life. Do we get that? It's not just metaphorical language. When we trust in Jesus in that moment of faith, we are regenerated we are made new and the holy spirit lives in us christ lives in us do we get this our life is no longer ours it's his do you live your life that way i ask from up here a lot and i ask because i think these are good indicators does your calendar show that does your checkbook show that you know, like, what's a checkbook? What's your, does your debit card show that? <laughs> Are there things in our lives that point to the fact that he has become our life? We have died with him on the cross, and we are raised to new life in him. 
Do our interactions day to day with our coworkers show that? Maybe if you're here and you're ashamed of Jesus and his words, maybe we don't believe his commands are for our good. Well, when we look at Jesus and the way he humbled himself, when we look at the cross, we know that he is for us. We know that he is for us because he died for us. He will not forsake his own people. I hope that none of you here today are so wallowing in sin that you wonder, does God care about me? Does he actually want me to come out of this? Because the answer is yes. Yes, Christian. Jesus died for you. He paid a high price for you. He purchased you with his blood so that you could be called his. Now, some of you here today, you're not Christians. I know that. Thank you for being here with us. And you're saying, there's no way I'll ever do this. <laughs> then I myself take up my cross and follow Jesus? No way. Not doing it. That's impossible. And what's crazy is if you think that, if you think, man, that's impossible, I'll never do that, you're actually starting to get it. Because it is impossible. <laughs> In our own flesh, it's absolutely impossible. It'll take a miracle for someone as sinful as me to follow someone as holy as Jesus. But a miracle's happened. Through his life, death, and resurrection, a miracle takes place. As the gospel is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit works to regenerate us, a miracle takes place. I know some of y'all are so like, oh, this is getting weird. I like it when it's like theoretical when we just talk about faith. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit of God renews people and gives us new life. It's miraculous. It's supernatural. And it's wonderful. So that means no matter how far you feel from God, if you're starting to say there's no way I could do that, that's a great first step because you're right. But if you look to the cross, and if anything in you says, I want to know that grace, I want to know that love, he may already be working in you now. If that's you today, after I preach, there's a table back there that says next steps. And I'm going to want you to go back there not to make some forced decision, not because we're going to bring you down front and put a mic in your face. We're actually not going to do that if we don't know you. Absolutely not. Go back there and have a conversation. Will you do that for me? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and you're hearing all of this, and you're saying, I'm not a Christian, there's no way I'll ever do that, have a conversation about that. Even if that's all you want to say. Hey, he called me out and said, I'll never do this. Cool. Go back and talk to somebody when we have that opportunity. But a lot of you here today, you are Christians. You claim to be Christians. For those who claim to be, and as we kind of went over some evaluation here, you thought, maybe that's not my life. Maybe I don't follow Jesus. Maybe he is just a savior for me and not my Lord. Will you follow him today? I think a lot of times we get bogged down and think, oh man, what's that going to be like in five years? No, 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 stop that. Will you follow him today? Turn away from your sin. Look at your calendar for the rest of the day. What have you got going on? Are you going to follow Jesus with every aspect of it? With the way you treat the person sitting beside you on the way out, are you going to follow Jesus? Many of you Christians in here honestly do this better than me. If you're visiting for the first time, you're, you're here at a good church. I need you to know that. There are strong brothers and sisters in here who love the Lord and know him well. And I want to encourage you to keep doing that.
keep following after Jesus so that we can follow after you as you follow him. We need you to keep denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. We need you to not be beaten down with, with politics or news headlines or anything else. Christians, stand in there in the grace of God. Know that he's with you. Know that we're here together, that it's not just you alone. Know that we can follow after him. Wherever you are on that today, maybe you don't fit neatly into any one of those categories, but you want to talk to somebody after, you want somebody to pray for you, the Next Step Station is a good place to do that as we're singing our last song. But I do hope today you will seriously consider Jesus' words. He doesn't just say, pray a prayer and go live your life. He doesn't say, follow your heart and just do whatever you think is right. He says, follow me. Are you following the Jesus of the Bible? Do you want to follow the Jesus of the Bible? I hope you do, and I hope you will. Let's pray.